We are going to continue to wrap up our series on wisdom by looking at how Jesus embodies the wisdom that we have learned about over the past few months. Uh, We're going to take a look at a passage that comes from uh, the section of Holy Week that we're entering into now, but a little bit different than we might normally look at that. So before we jump in, would you just pray with me and let's uh, approach the text together with open hearts and minds. God, we thank you for this opportunity for us to come together again to offer our voices, our hearts to sing and to pray, to read and to reflect. And we ask that as we do all these things, as we read these words, that you would uh, grow our hearts, that we would become people whose love just continues to grow deeper and wider every day, that we would find in our hearts a grace from you to be uh, agents of justice and change for those who need it. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 21, what you're going to find there in Matthew chapter 21 is the traditional reading from today. This is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you grew up going to church, then on this day every year, you'd show up at church and somebody like me would read about Jesus riding into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah on the back of a donkey. And we would talk about that whole procession. Palm leaves would be like thrown sometimes on the floor and kids would process forward. And we aren't going to do any of that today. So instead, we're going to skip right past the triumphal entry to read the passage that comes immediately after that. The beginning of Holy Week marks the beginning of Jesus entering in as the promised king, as the promised Messiah. And after he is received in such a triumphant way, the very next thing that happens is this. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Then Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. Then he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. This is the cleansing of the temple, of course. You've heard this story before. For some reason, we tend not to talk about this during Holy Week. But what's coming at the end of this week, of course, is the crucifixion of Jesus. And one of the things that I have always wondered is why it is we skip past one of the most obvious reasons why Jesus was crucified. It's important for us, I think, to remember that, you know, we've been talking about wisdom, of course, for the past couple of months in this church, what it means to be wise, what wisdom looks like, what basic wisdom looks like, what intermediate wisdom looks like, what advanced wisdom looks like. We've read Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes And I think it's worth pointing out here that Jesus doesn't appear to be doing the wise thing. Jesus was an emerging religious leader. He was a rabbi. He was a young, new religious teacher on the scene who was beginning to gather a whole host of followers. And the established existing religious leaders wanted to know what he was all about. Could they approve of him? Was he a part of the club? 
And of course, Jesus makes it difficult for them to approve of him. He keeps doing this sort of thing. In fact, this is the second time Jesus shows up in his ministry and turns the tables over in the temple. It's the second time that he seems to sort of, out of a place of anger, disrupt the normal business of religion and power and politics there. And as a result, he distances himself from those who could make sure that he is accepted, those who could make sure that he thrives, those who could make sure that his career advances. This is exactly the wrong thing for Jesus to do, is to make a nuisance of himself and to indict the powers around him. But this is what Jesus consistently does. Perhaps you've noticed this. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus begins his ministry by walking up the front of a synagogue and opening the scroll and reading the reading from that day. And he says, reading from it, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, the recovery of sight for the blind. This is Jesus reading from the ancient Hebrew tradition of Jubilee. Jubilee is, of course, when slaves are freed from their slavery, when people who are indebted are forgiven their debts, when people whose property and land was taken from them because they were too poor, it was given back to them so that they could begin to live flourishing lives again. When Jesus opened a scroll in Luke chapter 4 and said, I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's proclaiming freedom from debt, freedom from prison, freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression of the poor by the rich. This is the beginning of his pronouncement of good news. It should come as no surprise to us then that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Again, Jesus seems to be pointing out that God, this good God that we said last week, he, where Jesus took a stand on this idea that God is good, that Jesus' proclamation of a good God is that those who are blessed are those who have been impoverished and rejected and marginalized. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, people are coming to Jesus and they want to follow him. Jesus, we want to be a part of what you're doing. He doesn't give them a visitor packet and encourage them to sign up for the new members class. Instead, he says, are you sure you want to follow me? Birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but I have no place to lay my head. In other words, I'm homeless. You sure you want to be a part of this community? Jesus' commitment to serving those who are poor and excluded and marginalized is so great that he is living in solidarity with their conditions of poverty. He has become poor alongside them. Luke chapter 18, he says it more starkly when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, what must I do to be in good standing with God? And Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I have done all of those things. Jesus says, great, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. Remember that poor homeless guy. The rich young ruler 
walks away bewildered, scratching his head, not able to understand what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is very clearly that God, in all his goodness, takes a side. And this, I think, is the issue that we face, especially in churches like this. This is where the rubber meets the road in wisdom. Up to the point, this point, the conversation we've been having about wisdom has been entirely academic. What does Proverbs say about living a good life? What does Job say about why it is that good people suffer? What does Ecclesiastes say about what is the point of life if you can't guarantee that you're going to succeed and none of it matters because we're all going to die? These are interesting conversations. But they're just conversations. When we get to Jesus, we don't see somebody who is satisfied to just have an academic or theological or religious conversation about who God is or what it means to be wise. Jesus takes a stand. And Jesus takes a side. There is a version of wisdom that says, play by the rules, be smart. Be anointed by the powers that be, and you will be okay. Jesus says no, and he sides instead with those who are poor and oppressed. And from a certain point of view, that's a terribly foolish thing to do because it meant that he didn't have a place to lay his head. It meant that he was dependent on others for his well-being. It meant that he needed others to feed him, to take care of him, to show him hospitality when he needed it. Jesus is putting his body on the line to make a statement about what it means to live God's wisdom. I, I know, nobody wants to hear this. I, I don't want to hear it. I live a pretty comfortable life. I have a pretty nice middle-class house within a stone's throw of where I'm standing right now. I'm relatively healthy. I have money in the bank. My kids are all college graduates or soon-to-be college graduates who are on their way to living relatively comfortable lives and will hopefully make enough money to take care of me when I'm too old to do what I'm doing right now. I do not want to hear that following Jesus means not having a place to sleep, not having enough to eat, or not being able to count on the wisdom of this world that will give me security. I don't want to hear that this is what it means to be a Christian. But here is Jesus doing exactly that. Taking a stand on God's goodness, and then taking a side that God's goodness means putting our bodies, our lives on the line for those who are poor and marginalized and oppressed. This is what it means, I think, to follow Jesus. And I think the reason why that's an especially difficult thing to hear right now is because we are all tired. This is what Jen and Chelsea and Judah were just talking about. To take a side 
means to enter into real conflict. Some of you are experiencing that conflict right now with me. We don't want to come to church and experience conflict. We don't want to be told that following Jesus means taking a side with those who are being crushed every single day, because that means more conflict. And I don't know about you, but I am tired of conflict. Depending on your political persuasion, it has been two or three or four or six or eight or 30 years of conflict. And yet here is Jesus entering into Jerusalem and flipping the tables of the rich as a way of demonstrating what the good news of God really is all about. Jesus flips the tables of those who are in power on behalf of those who are not. That is what it means to follow Jesus. This doesn't mean we can't rest. This doesn't mean that after a few years of fighting battles or trying to organize for police reform or trying to feed hungry people or trying to serve the needs of people on the street and the endless, and I do mean endless, never-ending tide of poverty and mental illness and marginalization that we see every day, it doesn't mean that we can't stop and rest. We need to rest. And Jesus did that. In addition to putting his life and his body on the line for the poor and oppressed, he was a famous partier too. He turned water into wine. He enjoyed table fellowship with his friends and his enemies. So rest. Take the time that you need to be restored to be healed from a period of conflict. But while you are resting, consider this, that if you are feeling tired and burned out and exhausted and discouraged by the constant, never-ending presence of tension in your life and judgment and outright conflict because of the politicization of literally everything right now, I get it. I feel that way too. And I can't speak for you, but in my case, I'm realizing that I am getting a small taste of what it feels like every single day to be a person of color living in white supremacy, or to be a gay or lesbian person living in a culture of heteronormativity, or a trans person living in a world that is openly demonizing them right now, or an underpaid person living under the constant threat of hunger, eviction, and ruin, or a woman living in a world of pervasive misogyny and toxic masculinity. That is what I'm getting a taste of when I put my life, my rep reputation, my career on the line on behalf of those who are oppressed for people who live their whole lives crushed by the carelessness of disembodied power, living with conflict isn't really a choice. 
One way that those who are being crushed every day experience healing and restoration is when those of us who are more privileged stand in solidarity with them. Offer genuine relationships without the agenda to change them or fix them. And when we, on occasion, flip some tables on their behalf and offer them a respite from the experience of being crushed every day. This is embodied wisdom, Jesus style. And I wouldn't blame you if right now you were thinking, no thanks. Seriously, there are a dozen other churches that I could hit right now by swinging a dead cat who on any Sunday morning will make you feel a lot better than this. Used to be a part of one. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But this is what love looks like. It means putting our bodies on the line for those who need people to be there for them. That's what Jesus did. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity to be stretched by you, to come to terms with what it means to lean into the discomfort of your gospel, the potential conflict that it creates in our lives, and and also just to say to you today that we are tired. That it is exhausting to, to be constantly navigating conflict and constantly coming to terms with the changes that stimulate that conflict. There are real relationships at stake in these conflicts. And we confess that we don't always know how to navigate that. And so we pray today that as we lean into worship again, that you would pour into us a sense of grace. That we would have grace for the people that we disagree with, that they would have grace for us that we would have the courage to take a stand on the things that we are being led to take sides with. And that you would help us in the midst of that to find a place of peace in the middle of that war. Come and give us a space of rest this morning, God, as we commit ourselves anew to your gospel. And go with us this holy week as we reflect on what it means that you this week are moving closer to your death on the cross. Help us to prepare our hearts and minds to understand what that could mean and how that is an expression of this sort of love that stands in solidarity.
all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Good Friday service is going to be this Friday, the 15th at 6 p.m. right here. Um, this is a really beautiful service, um, and we hope that you can make it. It's a place to observe a day of sorrow, penance, and fasting. So please join us. We also have the How Not to Read the Bible Zoom group that will start April 27th. Uh, tired of people using the Bible to justify racism, misogyny, homophobia. We want to open it up for some discussion. So it's a six-week course. Um, and again, it starts Wednesday night, the 27th. You can sign up through Oceanside Sanctuary. We also have the No Greater Love Learning Anti-Racism Through Relationships. It's a small group. It's going to be beginning May 10th. Some of you have taken it uh, already and loved it. So join us for processing um, small, uh, in a small group towards radical healing. We'll engage with ways that white supremacy has shaped false assumptions about black Americans. Um, meetings start May 10th, and it will be every Tuesday for six weeks, also on Zoom. Okay, and then how to support our mission. I said we don't need your money, but you know, we do sometimes. So if you have anything uh, that you can give and you feel like this is a good spot, you can give online um, by going to our website, scanning the QR code, throwing a little bit in the box, only give out of what you have. And so finally, may the peace of God be with you. Okay, I can't wait to see you on Easter and Good Friday. Bye everyone.